Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to look, as I did do um, a few months ago, at the politics of conscription and particularly we're going to look at the role of the uh, post-war Labour Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevin and his particular um, views on the threat posed by uh, communism, by the Soviet Union uh, and his belief that a large and well-equipped and uh, well-manned British army would have to continue into the foreseeable future in order to police what remained of the British Empire, but also to present a significant um, fighting force that could be deployed to continental Europe uh, at any time. And so today we're going to look at National Service by Richard Vinan, brilliant uh, British uh, social historian um, who has uh, written extensively on subjects such as uh, suffrage um, and his exploration of Ernest Bevan. So it's worth pointing out that with the exception of the First World War by and the end of the Second World War, conscription had never really been Um, a significant feature of British uh, military recruiting or British social life. Um, The idea that the individual had this um, innate obligation to the state was contrary to um, British liberalism and it was also contrary to British military requirements throughout much of British history. British uh, armies tended to be small with large navies um, and that, uh, and so British expeditionary forces would tend to join with larger continental allies that would do the heavy lifting, but would help form coalitions and then use naval power to attack the enemy, be it uh, Napoleon or the Kaiser uh, from the, uh, the periphery. It's only the First World War that starts to really change that and force Britain to um, recruit mass armies um, and raise uh, armies of millions from the civilian population. And it's only halfway through the First World War in 1916 that recruitment is introduced anyway. And in 1916, it is largely the product of a Daily Mail um, hoo-ha and nonsense. The British Army actually has a surfeit of volunteers. They have more volunteers, even in 1916, even in the year of the Somme, than they can arm and equip. Um, The uh, Daily Mail um, managed to create a moral panic over the subject of conscription, suggesting that there were shirkers and idlers back at home, people that weren't doing their bit. It made 
uh, great ink for the Daily Mail, uh, lots of problems for Asquith, and eventually provided Lloyd George with the means by which he could um, become Prime Minister. Okay, so at the end of the Second World War, generals and politicians began to really debate seriously whether national service had to continue um, and whether it should be um, should be uh, abolished. Um, the end of conscription would have been very, very difficult. Britain has, at the end of the Second World War, huge global commitments, not just due to their empire, but to part, due to parts of the world such as Greece, for example, that if the British simply withdraw from, might tip over into communist rule. Um, the British have an occupying army in Germany, obviously. Um, the Second World War had given Britain uh, obligations in places that they never considered to be in their, uh, their interests. For example, the British army that periodically has to occupy Vietnam. Richard Vinan writes, In the short term, troops would be required to police areas that the British occupied. In the longer term, it was unclear what kind of military obligations might fall on Britain. Though politicians from both sides believe that, the, that Britain should remain a great power with influence throughout the world, the loss of India, which seemed inevitable to many by the end of the war, meant that Britain would abandon some of its garrisons, but it also meant that it would lose the use of Indian troops, many of whom had served outside the subcontinent. Various expedients were discussed. The British negotiated to maintain some Gurkha soldiers from Nepal. They used prisoners of war from Germany, Italy and Japan to provide labour for years after the end of fighting. Polish units remained with the British Army until 1949 and the government contemplated creating a foreign legion which would recruit from that substantial pool of young men in Central Europe who had lost their homes and or acquired a taste for fighting during the previous five years. People close to the army continued to advocate a British Foreign Legion in the 1950s. More seriously, the services recruited uh, women, something that they had never previously done in peacetime. None of these expedients were sufficient to produce the troops in the numbers required, but there was no formal decision about post-war conscription, perhaps just because ministers took it for granted. So it was assumed that there would be some kind of uh, post-war conscription, because in the uh, environment of 1945, it was entirely possible that there would be a future conflict with the Soviet Union, or that a considerable show of strength would be the one thing that would uh, prevent that. Between Germany's defeat and that of Japan, the British government changed. Churchill's wartime coalition was replaced with a Labour government during the general election of July 1945. So the Labour Party uh, doubled their representation, well, more than doubled their representation. They have one of the biggest victories in uh, parliamentary history, going from 154 seats to 393. They had an absolute majority, and the Tories lose 190 seats. And it was an election for largely on domestic affairs. Um, there was very little discussion of uh, foreign policy issues, very, very little discussion of military matters, and very little discussion of conscription or national service. However, despite the fact that Labour's manifesto, Let Us Face the Future, focused mainly on domestic issues, such as employment, social welfare, and the, the planned national health service, 
the Labour government would be presented with an extraordinarily challenging foreign policy environment over the next um, six years of its life, um, dealing with the um, loss of uh, India from the British Empire, um, the developing civil war in Palestine, and in 1950 the outbreak of the Korean War. Uh, also, uh, things as, um, challenges such as the uh, Berlin Crisis, 1948 49, uh, and the Greek Civil War. So, uh, that was to name just a few of the foreign policy commitments that Labour would face. Now, there had been, um, by and large, a, a socially stratified British army. Um, the officer class, um, largely public school, uh, Oxbridge, assumed that Churchill would win. They assumed that Churchill would be rewarded for his um, endeavours as a um, national figure during the war. Um, the working class uh, rank and file, young working class men, um, were more than likely to vote Labour. Uh, Labour voters themselves... Um, nationally wanted uh, change um, and this meant to uh, respond to a manifesto that explicitly promised uh, better living conditions, healthcare and houses uh, in the post-war era. It's not to say that the Conservative manifesto didn't hint at some of these things but they really um, played the game and thought that um, losing sides tend to in sensing which way public opinion is going and giving some token efforts towards it, but really uh, allowing the population to look at the other side and say, well, if we want the real thing, we will vote for it. Um, so there had been a strong vein of anti-militarism through the Labour Party in the 1930s. It was much weaker um, after the Second World War um, partly as a result of the experience of the war and the fact that many of the newer MPs had served during the war and um, there had been a, a collective agreement that uh, the Second World War uh, and the Spanish Civil War that preceded it, which had a strong uh, contingent from the Labour Party within it, had both been worthwhile struggles uh, against fascism. Labour was also intimately connected with the development of multilateral institutions after the war, um, particularly the United Nations, but also the Bretton Woods institutions that promised to um, maintain world order and economic stability and also uh, maintain the principle of collective security. And it was believed that Britain would need substantial armed forces to contribute to United Nations collective security and would also need substantial armed forces uh, in order to fulfil its um, role as a kind of regional and global policeman. Um, this role was only to last for a few years until uh, Britain's uh, near bankruptcy in 1947. Global policeman really meant a bulwark against communism. It was one of the great regrets of Harry Truman that he uh, cancelled Lend Lease in 1945 and forced the British into accepting uh, a loan on uh, very unfavourable terms, because that meant a steep decline in British world power 
and uh, a transition to America as not just being the global hegemon, but also the uh, global anti-communist um, fighting power, the, the, uh, the, the power of the Truman Doctrine. Now, if you go back half a dozen podcasts or so, um, I've done some of the very complicated politics of the Truman Doctrine that were by no means a simple declaration by Truman that communism must be stopped. America did not have, in between 1945 and 48. Uh, a united public uh, opinion, a united public front uh, on the subject of intervention in the Cold War. It's far more ambiguous than that uh, and more, and often more hassle than uh, Truman himself wanted. So let's talk about Ernest Bevan. Um, he was the most significant figure within the Labour Party uh, regarding the subject of conscription. Um, a uh, figure of extraordinary ability and uh, widely respected on both sides of the house. Um, he had been a, a lorry driver um, during the 1920s and 30s um, and had eventually become the head of the Transport and General Workers Union. During the war, he was the Minister for Labour and National Service. Uh, and in the Labour governments of 1945 to 51, he occupied the role of Foreign Secretary. He was the man who spoke for Britain. Um, the coherent thinking, if there was any, that underlay the British attitude towards post-war military service um, could be and was referred to at the time as Bevinism. Um, hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Though the political outlook of Bevin um, was more down to Bevin's own gut feeling than um, a clearly articulated set of ideological positions, Bevin was a uh, fierce anti-communist. So it's one of, the, one of the great misunderstandings about the Labour Party throughout the 20th century is that it has been particularly um, associated with the radical left. Almost since its inception, the Labour Party has rejected 
um, the uh, the revolutionary left um, from the the independent Labour Party all the way to the Communist Party of Great Britain um, during the 1930s um, Bevin as a trade union leader came into contact frequently with the Communist Party and had um, consistent run-ins with their overtly Stalinist um, positions. He was well aware of the activities of the Communist Party in Great Britain and he was also a party to intelligence on potential communist agents of which there are a significant number. Bevin thought that Britain should re remain um, a great power um, when discussion of the atomic bomb was um, uh, being uh, tabled. Um, the uh, Bevin said we need one with the Union Jack on it. And he, both he and Churchill believed that it would be uh, atomic power, uh, uh, atomic military power, that would uh, safeguard Britain's place at the top table of world affairs. This lesson was not lost on France either. Uh, and both decolonising powers struggled very quickly to acquire nuclear weapons uh, as rapidly as possible. And so um, Bevin was uh, on the right of the Labour Party and classed himself as a, a working-class patriot. He was uh, not dissimilar to Harold Wilson in this regard, who, um, during the 1950s and 60s, was um, less interested in, was certainly disinterested in European affairs, and also disinterested, to a greater degree, in a pan-Atlantic, a transatlantic uh, relationship. Um, he, Wilson, in the 1960s, uh, viewed uh, Britain's um, position as being able to be the lead nation in the, the Commonwealth, but at the same time uh, being a relatively meritocratic and social democratic um, country that managed to provide decent standards of living for uh, Britain's working classes. And both appealed to a kind of working class Toryism, in, in a way, that spoke to a deep working class instinct in Britain towards uh, national pride, uh, patriotism and a sense of, whilst having a sense of deference, still a sense of respect towards British institutions which had been fought for in two world wars. Richard Vinan writes, Bevin's position with regard to military service was odd. On the one hand, his personal links to the trade unions were closer than those of any other minister. On the other hand, as Minister of Labour and National Service, he had been closely associated during the war with the one thing the trade unions most disliked, the direction of industrial labour, and, in particular, the conscription of young men for work in mines. After the war, he occasionally spoke as though he regretted that military service did not go with some broader project of social levelling. Addressing boys from Emmanuel School in South London, which stood on the awkward frontier between grammar and public school, as well as that between officers and other ranks, he said, It must be as easy for the miner's son to enter the professions as for uh, the son of the middle-class home to enter the steel plate industry or go down the mines. The broadest possible view of national service must be taken by all. So... Um, in order to maintain the goodwill of the trade unions, um, the 
government decided to limit the uh, social aspect of national service. Post-war military service would be separated away from um, civilian work. So there would be, during a period of post-war national service, no equivalent uh, control of civilian manpower directing workers to whatever role it suited the government to direct them to. Um, military service would be universal for young men, but all other forms of compulsory service, such as the factories and the mines, uh, would be ab abolished. Um, there, there was n very little discussion of conscripting women for military or civilian roles uh, once the war had ended. Even in the Royal Army Medical Corps, um, there was no call-up of, uh, of, of women uh, at the end of the war. One possible explanation for this was the uh, focus that um, the Labour government had, in fact nearly all post-war governments across Europe had at the end of the war, on natalism, on um, increasing birth rates, making sure there were large numbers of children, uh, large cohorts of children being born every year in order to supply uh, industry with uh, a significant uh, amount of manpower um, eventually when they grew up. So it was Bevin's influence that secured from the Labour Party um, the agreement to institute uh, post-war conscription. Um, when uh, Clement Attlee was attending uh, the San Francisco Conference, um, this was decided, and it was obviously the San Francisco Conference that uh, led to the founding of the United Nations. One day after the Germans surrender on May uh, on May the eighth, nineteen forty-five, uh, Bevan met with the tripartite committee, which brought together the Parliamentary Labour Party, the Labour Party's national executive, and the Trade Union Conference, um, Congress. Big pardon. So he persuaded the committee to support conscription, and he said that this should happen. He made several kind of cunning plays. Um, he pretended that it wouldn't last for long after the war, even though he was certain it would do. Obviously, it lasted until 1963. Um, that service would be limited to just one year, um, whereas he knew that it would only make sense for uh, soldiers to be at least in uh, uniform for 18 months, and that um, it would contribute to collective security. Um, that there was more than likely at the United Nations going to be some big breach with the Soviet Union, uh, which, if they withdrew from the principle of collective security, would mean that the whole idea would be undermined. And so other nations needed to be able to provide as much manpower as was possible. And collective security, uh, ensuring a, a safe post-war world, was uh, the key aspect that um, of Labour foreign policy and, and was music to the ears of uh, members of the NEC particularly. Labour attitudes uh, were complicated um, and they were complicated by um, a minority of dissident MPs within the Parliamentary Labour Party and, more importantly, uh, by a sense that the party was the heir to the anti-militarist and anti-conscription traditions that had existed during the 1930s. So people carrying on 
uh, ideas that had been seen as noble and progressive uh, before the failure of uh, appeasement. Um, there were significant figures in the cabinet who opposed conscription um, when it was first um, discussed in 1945, and some Labour MPs uh, criticised it on pacif uh, pacifist and anti-militarist grounds, or sometimes that it uh, referred to, it went back to the kind of the dilemmas that the Liberal government had faced during the First World War. Um, Ellis Smith, for example, who's Labour MP for Stoke, um, referred to Sydney Street, Antwerp, Gallipoli, and the responsibility of Mr Churchill when he was a young man sending forces to Liverpool and Salford because dockers were taking a stand on trade union rights. So what um, Ellis Smith was suggesting was that perhaps the Labour government might not use a large conscripted military force uh, against the working classes, but possibly a future Conservative government might. And Mr Churchill himself was by no means a spent force in British politics. This seems fanciful now, but given the uh, period of uh, unrest and the willingness uh, in the uh, 1920s particularly to deploy force um, to discipline Labour, um, the Labour Party itself were, were mindful of this. So, for a great many Labour MPs, it was considered to be an irrelevance. Um, James Callaghan, later Prime Minister, um, who served as a naval officer during the war, um, was the spokesman for ordinary servicemen who resented those who gained exemption from service or received special treatment while they were in the forces. On the other side of the party, um, one of the few figures on the left of the party who supported conscription was Michael Foote, who had been the author of the pamphlet Guilty Men in 1940, which had laid out uh, criticisms against Chamberlain and other Conservatives for uh, the uh, horrors of uh, appeasement. Um, Michael Foote believed in conscription um, in solidarity with many continental socialists because he thought that a large army would be a democratic army and it would be a defender of democracy and peace. And that that is what its role would be. Criticisms of the policy uh, of conscription um, provided some MPs with a means of attacking Bevin himself. So the rivals to Bevin were able to um, get ma maintain a great deal of capital out of it. One, Richard Crossman, later of the Richard Crossman Diaries fame, um, demanded uh, or claimed that uh, Anglo-American Entente would make war more likely rather than less, and that Britain um, was being forced to adopt conscription in the interests of America. Well, it ultimately, to some degree, in some instances, does serve the interests of America, but largely unintentionally. There seems to be little evidence that Washington was placing this kind of pressure on Great Britain. And there, just for now, we must leave things. Um, we'll continue with this bit by bit uh, in the not-too-distant future uh, and examine further the uh, British political and social ramifications of conscription. And Britain kind of really as a cipher for Britain's um, world role after 1945. Anyway, um, I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.